Welcome to the Bok Deer Podcast. This is a stereoscopic history. May 1921. The view from Germany. The impact of the first reparation instalment. 24 hours before the deadline on May the 31st, 132 billion gold marks were duly paid to the Inter-Allied Reparations Commission but not under the chancellorship of Konstantin Ferenbach. Yet his party, Zentrum, the Catholic Centre Party, retained its influence in all the major offices of state. After Ferenbach and the independent diplomat Walter Simmons, the foreign minister, both resigned. The vacant positions of chancellor and foreign minister were both taken by Joseph Wirt, the latter in an acting role until the appointment of Friedrich Rosen. The new Chancellor held this portfolio in addition to continuing in the Ministry of Finance. For about ten days then, Zentrum, in the person of Wirt, strengthened its hold on the levers of power in each of these senior ministries. However, the Social Democratic Party, the SPD, was back. From playing no part in government under Fierenbach, Wirt's new cabinet had not only the former SPD Chancellor Gustav Bauer as Deputy Chancellor, but also featured SPD members in the Ministries of the Interior and Economic Affairs. This party it was who had signed the Paris Peace Treaty and thus labelled by the radical right as traitors. The relatively emollient effect Zentrum in government had just had on the nationalist sentiment in the country, putting the SPD wholly in opposition, was now followed by a coarser nationalism and the threat of political assassination for SPD members in office. The Organisation Consul, or OC, was behind many of the killings. The most prominent this year, 1921, was that of one of the co-signatories of the Paris Peace Treaty, the Catholic centrist Matthäus Erzberger, in August, understood by the OC as a November criminal, one of a number of individuals they held responsible for the Kiel mutiny in 1918, following the armistice and for the Weimar democracy that followed. Only the Weimar Republic as a democracy did not follow the 1918 collapse into anarchy. It was the nascent democratic Weimar government that was ultimately responsible for putting down the sailors' uprising. The hatred on the nationalist right, at the best of times anti-Semitic, focused on the so-called criminals within Wirt's first cabinet, with particular detestation for those it did not regard as German. Friedrich Rosen, already mentioned, was an Orientalist and polyglot of Semitic languages. He was, in fact, a Christian, but Jewish enough for the extreme nationalists, as he had Jewish lineage on his mother's side. Walter Rathenauer, whom Wirt took some time to persuade to join the cabinet, he finally did so on the 29th of May 1921, was appointed Minister of Reconstruction. Later, as Foreign Minister in Wirt's second cabinet, succeeding Rosen in that post, in 1922 became the highest-ranking political figure to be gunned down by the proto-Nazi right, the organisation consul again. 
his reluctance to take high office the previous year being justified in hindsight. Although aligned with the German Democratic Party, the DDP, he had been seen as a pragmatist as he was an industrialist first and a politician second. The DDP was economically liberal and internationalist in a way that excited accusations of worldwide Jewish conspiracies, as this was the party most Germans who happened to be Jewish tended to vote for. It was also generally the party that academia favoured. It is not to be confused with a more right-wing DVP, the German People's Party. The relative differences between the two were discussed in Season 1 in the June View from Germany. However, it is important to note here that those politically right of centre at a stretch containing nationalistic, anti-Semitic elements was not the progenitor of fascism. However, the centre was more likely to drift significantly further out if there was no representation in government for its values. Many of these did eventually become Nazis adopting extreme nationalistic values. Others, the majority, balked at them, but were hardly more liberal, believing in the innate superiority of the German people, forged by iron and blood, under Bismarck, and tempered by the Protestant work ethic, in which citizens, while having rights as individuals, remained gleefully and patriotically bound to the monarchy as subjects. It is quite a spectrum, which defies stereotyping. A figure typical of the inherent contradictions here would be Gustav Stresemann, DDP member briefly in 1919 and then eventually leader of the DVP. Although his international reputation was made in the People's Party, he was the bridge between these two liberal factions and defined each by not being wholly at home in either of them. He remained a loyal monarchist emotionally long after the DVP had comfortably made its peace with republicanism, yet he himself was pragmatically republican enough to find common ground and a way of working with those he had little in common with personally including representatives of foreign governments. Long before the DVP party as a whole, the party he headed managed to do so. Neither Liberal Party got anywhere near dominating cabinet office. The most the DDP managed was six ministries of state under Gustav Bauer's chancellorship in 1919. However, in the person of Gustav Stresemann from November 1923, amid galloping inflation, well on its way to hyperinflation, economic liberalism as a kind of proto-globalization brought dollar loans to Germany in connection with the Dawes plan, which will be dealt with in due course. The new Chancellor sought to engender the will among his disparate cabinet to restore Germany as a welfare state without the Prussian militarism that once defined it along class lines. The DVP, having held three portfolios under Fehrenbach, were now out of government. However, there was some gravitation towards the centre from the left as the non-parliamentary independent Social Democratic Party, the USPD, started fragmenting. Just under half within its rank and file, implacably opposed to parliamentary democracy, splintered away, joining up with the Communist Party. 
The remainder came round to working fully in tandem with the SDP in the Reichstag by the summer of 1922, before returning to the party proper in early autumn. Thus, there were outliers on both the left and the right. Outliers beyond the parliamentary process, that is, as parliamentary democracy became less and less credible as a form of government, dictatorship of one colour or another became more and more likely as crisis followed crisis. The crises that book-ended the first Wirt government were the London ultimatum at the outset in May, and in due course the decision of the League of Nations, this was in October, to have Germany cede at least two-thirds of Upper Silesia to Poland. Not the final word, that was the Geneva Accord of 1922, discussed last month. On coming into office in May, Wirt and his cabinet attempted, within what constituted international law in the form of the League of Nations, to demonstrate the practical impossibility of satisfying the reparation demands. Not so much to member nations of the League, the British or the French, intent on retributive redress, but to the Americans, the architects of the League, yet non-members. However, they were associate members of its Inter-Allied Reparations Commission. The US would not be spared the consequences of the standoff between Germany and their European neighbours. Berlin's default on reparation payments could only result in French and Belgium armies of occupation starting in the Ruhr. Such actions would demand higher military budgets, compromising the ability of London and Paris to repay America what they both owed in the form of massive transatlantic war loans. On leaving office in October, or attempting to, by offering his resignation, Wirt must have seen the coming financial crisis and felt that just printing money was not going to be the best way of dealing with it. The exchange rate of the mark was dropping as a result of internal strife involving the right wing of the People's Party in Bavaria. Compounding this was confirmation from the Upper Silesian Plebiscite Commission that the industrial triangle there would have to be ceded to Poland, making the loss of revenue in the second richest area of Germany, mineral-wise, crucial as to its ability to pay war reparations. In addition, the Plebiscite Commission made formal recommendations that, if implemented, would have created a layer of bureaucracy putting yet more strain on the German mark. The first recommendation was that Upper Silesia should become a single economic unit, with the further recommendation that two bodies should be set up to oversee a 15-year transition period. One, a mixed Silesian commission consisting of an equal number of Germans and Poles, would take responsibility for the handover at a macro level, with the other as an arbitral tribunal dealing with disputes between individuals. Each would have a neutral chair appointed by the League. However, Wirt's resignation remained pending on the head of state's desk for three days, after which he was persuaded by the president, Friedrich Ebert, to form another cabinet. The appointments to his second cabinet saw changes of personnel, but very little change in the balance of party political representation.
The View from Russia New Politics and the Education of the Peasant The Communists had all but sealed victory in the Russian Civil War in the country, but had practically lost the countryside by April 1921. The famines that delayed the introduction of Bolshevism to rural Russia were discussed in Season 1, the podcasts of October and November, where the economics of NEP, the new economic policy, was the main focus. But NEP also translates as new economic politics. I now want to focus on the politics rather than the economics. The first wind of policy change came in the aftermath of the Kronstadt Rebellion in March 1921, the high watermark of challenge to the monopoly on power held by the communists in the Kremlin. As the rebels were being gunned down while fleeing across the ice in the direction of Finland, word came of the new politics to both deflect criticism at home and from abroad. Later, on October the 17th of 1921, Lenin addressed the second All-Russia Congress of Political Education Departments with the text of his speech appearing as a policy statement in the Congress's bulletin two days later. Overall, it reads as a critically incisive analysis of the state of the new Soviet Russian Republic. His pinpointing of three enemies facing the new workers' state, bureaucratic complacency, illiteracy and bribery, could all be taken out of context in hindsight and yet still say something about what became of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and, to some extent, the Russian Federation today. Perversely, regarding the second mentioned, it can of course be pointed out that 90% of Russians were unable to either read or write 100 years ago, in contrast to 90% of Soviets becoming literate a generation later. But enough literacy to take on board propagandist pulp cannot be compared with the level of literacy necessary to tell facts apart from politically motivated fictions. I will come back to this in turn. The promise held out by the new economic policy or new economic politics, either way NEP, has led apologists for the regime, those generally reluctant to apply historical context, to paint the Lenin years as a path not taken, a fork on the byway to social utopia where Stalin duped his contemporaries, that is the communists, to survive Lenin into believing that the state as an iron fist encouraging denunciation leading to domestic terror was the best way to maintain their hold on power. Some even want to see Stalinism as somehow immaculately conceived in order to let Leninism why don't we call it proto-Stalinism, off the hook? However, quite apart from what was, and sometimes still is, seen as political pragmatism, Lenin had instituted the Cheka and militarized inland security. The obdurate Tsarist surveillance state had never fully been dismantled. Lenin and Trotsky overhauled it in the colours of the revolution before Stalin extended and consolidated it.
This was consistent with Marxism only as far as its spurious morphing into Marxist-Leninism. There was nothing qualitatively evil about Stalin in relation to the terror that could not be seen in embryo in both Lenin and Trotsky. It was straightforwardly a matter of degree. Both of them, just as much as Stalin, were habitually given to lawlessness not so much as an expedient but as the means to the final goal that was an egalitarian workers' state. Both Lenin and Trotsky spent their formative years fermenting revolution, believing that the class struggle was of a higher order than bourgeois jurisprudence. This bears spelling out, even if there is a risk of labouring the point for those familiar with last season's podcasts. Looking at the new economic politics as a document, we can now recast the three enemies Lenin identified in the following way. Two of the three cannot be entirely separated out one from the other. Anyway, to take them in ascending order, bribery. There is no evidence that Lenin exploited his position venally. That is, unless we want to question his acceptance of the financial wherewithal offered by the German high command to get him into Petrograd as their agent provocateur in 1917. Illiteracy was a stranger to Lenin, who spoke three languages fluently. At school, he excelled in the classics. He had had the kind of education that he neither wanted for others, nor was ready to apply to the issues of the moment. He outlined the challenges of worker and peasant education as follows. We are carrying on propaganda against barbarism and against ulcers like bribery, and I hope you are doing the same. But political education is much more than this propaganda. It means practical results. It means teaching the people how to achieve these results and setting an example to others, not as members of an executive committee, but as ordinary citizens who, being politically better educated, are able not only to hurl imprecations at red tape, that is very widely practised among us, but to show how this evil can really be overcome. This is a very difficult art, which cannot be practised until the general level of culture is raised, until the mass of workers and peasants is more cultured than now. It is to this function that I should like most of all to draw the attention of the Central Political Education Department. Lenin was in essence saying that the vast majority of Russians, whether willing communists or not, failed to measure up as citizens for the new worker state due to a lack of culture, while remaining vague as to what being cultured actually means, leaving what was to be done to the bureaucratic machinations of the Central Political Education Department. Bureaucratic Complacency the first mentioned enemy. The paragraph is worth quoting in full. Any member of the Communist Party who has not yet been isolated and who imagines he can solve all his problems by issuing communist decrees is guilty of communist conceit. As far as this goes, the term communist conceit, Kommunistischeskaya, 
Schwanstwa can be comfortably translated as bureaucratic complacency. However, the paragraph continues. Because he is still a member of the ruling party and is employed in government office, he assumes this entitles him to talk about the effectiveness of political education. Not so. This is only communist conceit. The focus is on learning how to impart political knowledge which we have not managed yet, nor have we learnt to address the subject properly. The tendency to take credit for collective outcomes can only mean communist conceit here. On a close reading of the text, two days after listening to it as an address, some at the time might have concluded that Lenin was making a rod for his own back with the conflation of two very different things. Take the following from the beginning of the text regarding differences over the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. We today have greater insight, but 1921 would have given Lenin some benefit of it. Russia emerged from the imperialist war mutilated, it is true, but not so mutilated as she would have been had she continued to defend the fatherland, as she was advised to do, by the imperialists, the Mensheviki and socialist revolutionaries. If we recall all this, we shall understand that in the initial period, when we had only just completed the first stage in the work of building up the Soviet government and had only just emerged from the imperialist war, what we said about our tasks in the field of economic development was much more cautious and circumspect than our actions in the latter half of 1918 and throughout 1919 and 1920. The sophistry of this passage suggests a failure to have learned from the facts. Lenin was still trying to come to terms with that treaty, the outcomes of which had made the differences between the Bolsheviki on the one hand and the Mensheviki, as well as the socialist revolutionaries on the other, irreconcilable. Lenin, nearly four years on, retained the if-only conceit that goes something along the lines of people coming to their senses. Here, a deeper sense of betrayal is never far behind and often close to home. Moreover, his contempt for any other revolutionary group was not justified by their assumed willingness, that is, on the part of the Mensheviki and socialist revolutionaries, to heed the advice of the imperialists, presumably the French and the British, who were merely pointing out that Trotsky at Brest-Litovsk had agreed to cede to Germany nearly half of European Russia a third of its population, over half its industrial capacity, including nine out of ten collieries, and a quarter of its railway infrastructure. No basis on which to build a revolution. In this, Lenin, first among equals in the Communist Party, was being haughty and disingenuous, not to mention conceited. If not quite his own worst enemy, Lenin was fallible and guilty of some of the failures he was too ready to accuse others of. Whatever the merits or demerits of the new economic policy or politics, when it was in full swing in the mid-twenties after Lenin's death, 
the manner in which he had introduced it is testimony to his shortcomings, if not necessarily those of Nep itself. The View from America America declares that she fought for herself alone in World War I. At a dinner at the American Embassy in London on May the 19th to welcome the latest ambassador to the Court of St. James's, the new incumbent George Brinton McLennan Harvey was reported in the New York Times as saying the following. In conformity with this general declaration, I am able to announce that this day I was authorized and directed by my government in the event of a meeting of the Supreme Council being held to consider the Silesian proposition to represent in that meeting the President of the United States. America was interested in the outcome of the conflict in Upper Silesia and wanted to play a part in order to safeguard its own commercial interests on its own terms, not through the courtly procedures of European diplomacy, but as the new president, Warren Harding, personified in the American approach to diplomacy, humble but unafraid. The Supreme Council he alluded to was in fact the War Council that had enforced the peace in Paris over Germany through its Joint Chiefs of Staff, but since January last year, 1920, had been superseded by the Council of Ambassadors, which Harvey later referenced. Initially, he perhaps overlooked it knowingly in order to register his contempt for a continent the WASP elite of America looked down on as warlike and given to tribal grudge. Aware that America was never going to sit side by side with Britain at the League, the only connection with the old country left for him to evoke in this address was the old Anglo-Saxon one. Britain and America as two countries sharing a common language, or divided by one. As the writer George Bernard Shaw observed, it was thus possible for the new ambassador to say something in general, or add nothing much at all on the matter of America's neutrality. Rather would I say of the United Kingdom, as Daniel Webster said of Massachusetts, there she is, behold her and judge for yourselves nor in withholding flattery from your land would I seek it for my own. We too are beginning to feel in a modest fashion that blandishments contribute little to our satisfaction. Time was undeniably when John Bull appealed to us rightly or wrongly as perhaps a trifle arrogant while simultaneously Uncle Sam crossed your vision, if at all, as a whiteling vulgarian. But half a century has wrought a wondrous change. Grotesque caricatures have passed into relative oblivion, and in their places now gleam in personification of our splendid nations, beautiful figures of Britannia and Columbia, hand in hand, side by side, erect and glorious upon a plane of perfect equality in the eyes of each other and of all the world. So would we have them stand forever. 
In response, the British Prime Minister Lloyd George tagged on to what was in Britain's parochial interest related in the first quote rather than Britannia and Colombia hand in hand for the rest of the world to see. I am glad that the ambassador's appointment coincides with the decision of the United States to be represented adequately in the councils of the nations. And I am glad of the choice which has been made that a new ambassador has been chosen as representative of the United States and of its president to the Supreme Council, and that he will be present at the coming meeting which is to take place. It is essential for the peace of the world that America should be in. European diplomacy is working in a dense thicket of ancient feuds. It is sometimes difficult to see the path. It is not always possible to see the light of day. We have quarrels which have lasted for centuries, or, as the old legal phrase runs, from a time beyond which the memory of man runneth not to the contrary. I never realized till the peace conference how many sad feuds there were, or how deep were their roots. In Central Europe, there are blood feuds we all thought had been dead and buried for centuries, which have been resurrected into full and vigorous life with peace. Repression and repose for centuries have only given them new strength. It is difficult to walk wisely or well amidst all these ancient conflicts. Memories are so great, so continuous, so tense. George Harvey's position on American foreign policy was simple. The best foreign policy was no policy at all. His term as ambassador to Britain lasted for 30 months, from May 12, 1921, and not without controversy. From the very beginning, indeed, as a result of this speech just discussed, party Democrats were calling for him to clarify what he had said, incredulous as to the seeming message. America had no altruistic intentions towards the rest of the world. Harvey's politics was always conservative. His alignment had been with the Democratic Party in New Jersey, where Warren G. Harding's immediate predecessor, Woodrow Wilson, was governor prior to his, Wilson's, running for the presidency, a move Harvey had done his best to bring about. But Harvey, a then-Democrat, was not the only party member alarmed by the apparent abandoning of American isolationism mid-term. Wilson had run for re-election in 1916 on the promise of keeping America out of the war, but then not only took the United States in, but envisioned the possibility of himself becoming de facto world president with his country as founding members of the League of Nations with a say in other countries' business. However, there had to be reciprocity, meaning Congress would not have sole, strictly speaking, sovereign responsibility over questions of military deployment for the protection of free Americans. This was where the matter of the US joining the League completely fell apart. Appointed by the new, staunchly Republican President Harding to the Court of St. James's, Harvey did everything he could to help the administration finally bury the League of Nations on American soil. 